Welcome everyone. I'd like to um, welcome you all to our first fireside chat and it's the first public event of the new Data Science Institute. I'm Ken Benoit. I'm the director of the Data Science Institute and a professor in the Department of Methodology at the London School of Economics. And welcome to you all, whether you're joining us um, live on Zoom or live on Facebook or you're watching this on a recording. It's my great pleasure today to introduce Jackie Wright. Jackie is currently the Corporate Vice President and Chief Digital Officer for Microsoft US. In this role, she leads teams and inspires them to help uh, businesses leverage technology to drive innovation, to adopt sustainable and accessible business models, and to digitally transform. She rejoined Microsoft in 2019 after completing a two-year secondment as the Chief Digital and Information Officer for HMRC, which is, as we all know, the British Government Tax Department. Her other previous roles have included CIO, Chief Information Officer positions at BP and GE. Her recognitions in technology and diversity include an honorary doctorate from Aston University, being named as a 2020 National Diversity Council's 50 Most Powerful Women in Technology, Britain's Power List 100 of Most Influential Black People, Top 100 BAME Leaders in Business, Top 100 BAME Leaders in Tech, and Savoy Magazine's Top Women List. She's also been featured in numerous publications, including CIO Magazine and the Wall Street Journal CIO Journal. As a woman of color, her passion, advocacy, and influence to create a truly inclusive world are demonstrated in various forums where she regularly speaks on diversity, on digital inclusion, and on the power of inclusive leadership. And as a leader in technology, she uses her broad platform to drive thought leadership, not just for the positive impact of digital transformation for business, but also for social, economic, and environmental change. So, Jackie, let me ask you, this is a fascinating career and you've worked in a variety of roles and now as Chief, chief Digital Officer, tell us a little bit about what a Chief Digital Officer does and how does your role affect Microsoft, its users and society in general? Yeah, th thanks for having me, Ken. You know, it's, I'm really looking forward to the discussion. It's um, interesting times we're living in. And, um, you know, as a, as a Chief Digital Officer, what does that really mean? And it, it means a few things. Um, when you think about where we are as a society, um, digital plays a key role in everything we do, in how we affect change, in how we transform how we work, um, businesses, our customers, um, and, and how, how you interact on a daily basis. Um, and so my role is all about that. But for our customers, how do we as Microsoft enable our customers to think about digital transformation? What are the solutions and platforms that, that they should be embracing to help them? Um, how do we think about the world in today, in today's society, and how can we enable and accelerate change using digital at the core? And then internally, how can we change how we work, how we sell to our customers? So, you know, the ethos is about digital, and then it's about all those things surrounding it and how we, how we really tr truly transform the world. Tell us a little bit about what your career journey was like. So when you were, you were, when you were getting started, for example, in university, did you ever think that you would become eventually the, the CDO of Microsoft? No. I mean, you know, just think about it as a, as a, as a young, young child, uh, you know, it, it, growing up in North London, 
uh, you are exposed to certain things, but not everything. And this is, this is pre-internet, right? So it's not like you, you have the ability to go out and, and search for things. And so, you, you know, you're limited in, in, in your exposure. And my exposure was really, I was all about what can I do in the political science arena? You know, uh, again, you know, acknowledge that I was, I was someone different, um, that, you know, my dad was, was really embraced, in, in, engrossed in the politics of, of society and what was going on and how people are treated and how people of color are treated. And, you know, I, I think I, I got a bit of that. And so political science was what I was focused on. And then I fell into technology. Um, I, uh, math was my forte. You know, I, I went on to an IBM PC while I was working part time while in university. And then the rest was history. It was like, wow. I can really change things using this computer stuff. So why not try it? And, uh, you know, throughout my career, it, it has been kind of the ethos of who I am. It's about how can I change things? How can I, you know, play with things that make things be, be completely different in terms of the outcomes? Um, and, and that has been kind of what, I've, what it's been all about for me as, as I've um, embarked on my career. So your, your university degree was in political science. No, it started out, but ended up in computer science. Okay, all right. Science and accounting. Again, you know, this, the, the math piece of it um, really was, was really what, 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 what I enjoyed at the time, but I also enjoyed solving problems. And so both of those things together. And um, I, I, I kind of thought that computers was, was the way of the future. However, you know, my, my aunt always used to say, why, why, do you, why do you want to be a computer science engineer? Why do you want to do that? Um, because at that time, also women, there were very few women in this field. And so it wasn't something that people readily looked at you and said, aha, you are, um, you are, you're, you're a computer person, aren't you? Um, not naturally. They were like, wow, you are. Um, and so, you know, it was, all, it was also an anomaly, which also kind of, kind of helped the trajectory, I think, because, you know, people were just not used to seeing someone like me. I've heard from a lot of colleagues who are in data science now that, you know, even even people who are um, younger than thirty, that growing up, women who are growing up as teens were some in many cases discouraged from pursuing data science or computer science. Absolutely, and and you know, today it is about showcasing um, role models so that so that the young ones can see that they too can be. Again, it all boils down to exposure. What, what are you exposed to? So. In, in following this career path, you, you mentioned your father. Um, what other important influences led you along the journey that you've taken? You know, as I've, as I've gotten older, I start to reflect on, you know, what, what has really influenced me in my life and family first. So, so yes, my father played a key role in my life. Um, stoic man, um, was, was of the Windrush generation to the UK. Um, fought through all the barriers relative to, to what, what people of color, you know, BAME people had to overcome and made sure that his children could really think that they could be anything, you know, never instilled anything, any doubt. So, so for me, that confidence that I needed was instilled by my father. And then throughout my career, there have been people along the way who have helped me, um, people who have, you know, the first woman, manager I had who took me under her wing and told me taught me all about how to navigate the environment that I lived in I worked in and who to look out for who were the influencers um 
the first leader who gave me my first CIO job, who um, was was a was a black man, who who said, Jackie, tell me what you what, what is it you want? Um, and I said, I want to become a CIO. And so whenever you, whenever you see something like that, help me out. And you know, he was in a position of power and influence, so he was able to to say, here's an opportunity. Here's a, here's someone I think you should really look at. And that was helped my trajectory. And then, you know, along the way, my personal board of directors, everybody who's, you know, who's guided me and mentored me and even my children who make sure that I keep it real. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you want to make sure that your value, your core values are still the same and that you're living up to who you are as an individual. That's fantastic. Fantastic story. And um, um, it's wonderful to hear stories like that. I hope that people have similar experiences now. I, I hope. We like to think that things have, uh, have changed, but I think we always have to uh, maintain that encouraging role um, to get a more inclusive representation. Yeah. And I, I would add, Ken, that it, ha- it hasn't been easy either. I mean, let, let's be frank, you know, we have a long way to go to really create a truly inclusive environment. And so while it was hard, We've made progress. We still have a very long way to go. So anything we can do to encourage and create a, the right environment for, for, for everyone to thrive, that's, what, that's, what, that's, that's the purpose for me, for my life right now. Well, I, I mentioned um, before we started some of the, uh, I've, I've heard from people who, who heard about this event for me who mentioned you as, as a role model and very inspiring to, to many people. Thank you. Your um, the influences you you become one of those influences on people, and we're very glad to have you here, uh, being able to tell stories like that. Thank you. But let's turn to the role of um, going back to the transformation of society through data and data science. So we unfortunately were keenly aware that we have plenty of challenges in society now, and so many of them seem to be both solvable and, in some cases bear responsibility from the data that is uh, everywhere in the world right now. So if we were to um, to try to use this data to solve some of these key global challenges, how, how important do you think the role of data is in solving or addressing those challenges? So let, let me start out by saying that, you know, data can be harnessed, monetized, and exploited. And so when you think about the importance We have more data now than we've ever had and every day, more data than we've had in the past 20 years, you know. And so this proliferation, we need to be able to use it to create and solve challenges. And without it, you can't predict, you can't anticipate, you can't retrospectively look at data to help you analyze, to think about how you do things differently. Um, And so without, you know, the, the foundation of solving problems today is all about data. Um, If you look at some of the things we're doing today in terms of how we're able to solve some problems, some of the immediate ones, um, data is what we use to really think about the problem, how we solve it, how you can anticipate, how you predict what you need to do to to have a different outcome. So yes, it, it is at the heart of our very existence to be able to, to solve the world's problems today. What do you think are the most important obstacles that we'd have to overcome to make that possible? So I think, I, well, and, and, and if we talk about not just the obstacles, but the opportunities, there are opportunities in how we use data. We need to collaborate more. 
We need to make sure that we are working across boundaries in, you know, globally. If you look at COVID, look at the clinical trials, look at what we've been able to do when we collaborate. Look at what we've been able to do globally when you understand the parameters of the problems that we have at hand, when you understand the trajectory of a problem, when you understand the, 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 the things that are making that problem far greater than it should be. So just think about the opportunity to understand that, collaborate to then solve that problem. Now, on the flip side, to your point about sinister, there, there, there are things we also have to watch out for. Um, we've seen how the use of data has created major social unrest, how, how it's created movements, positive and negative. And so the question is, how do we help govern that in a way that doesn't remove people's freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, but at the same time create some boundaries by which we can anticipate and control the types of things that are not to our best, not in the best interest of our society. So I'm going to, I want to interject with a question here that's come through. Um, this is a question from Chantal Smith, who's doing an MSc in economy, risk and society. And she asks, how do you see the advent of quantum computing transforming society? What might be its potential risk? So, uh, so much like the risk, the, the, the opportunity of taking large data sets and, and, and solving problems in a way that one would never have imagined, the risks are somewhat the same. How do you control the risks associated with unethical, a, unethical AI and responsibilities relative to the compute, computational and analytics that go on? And, and I would argue that everyone plays a role. And so while, while we think about the magnitude of the things we're able to do with quantum computing, we also have to understand and put in risk frameworks that help us understand and anticipate the risks and make sure that, that frame, those frameworks are governed effectively. One of the conversations I frequently have with people in business or in government is about, well, there's one challenge of organizing the data, another challenge of a team to analyze the data, but then the third and very often the most difficult challenge is filtering the actionable insights from that data team into decision-making. Absolutely. Um, that is, seems to be one of the, the, the key challenges that governments face and that uh, many businesses face. So, let, so, I, so, so if we go back to the actual ingestion for the purposes of you know, predictive or prescriptive analytics, one has to understand that you have to have diversity of thought, diversity of a team, because it's only as good as the data that you're putting in. So, so let's start with that. So let's make sure that we create an environment where our teams for the purposes of using and de developing these models are diverse. And then on the flip side to your point about how you filter out, again, hinges on everyone being able to participate and you thinking through the ramifications because if you only have one lens, then you, you, you're bar you, you have clear barriers to not being able to make sure that it is a comprehensive model 
and you're thinking through all the possible permutations that could occur relative to what you what relative to the data and the models you're building. So for me, diversity at the core, everything from all the way ingesting to 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 the to, to the analytical model that's being created, is key. There seems to be some confusion in the modern world about the difference between opinions and beliefs about facts. And I my my personal view is well, my my view is um, we have opinions about things that are subjective, but facts are either true or false. And whether we believe them or not is a, is a matter of faith, but it's not an opinion about a different fact. And I think one of the things that must really stand in the way of frustrations for people providing this information and some of the actionable insights is whether they'll be paid attention to or disregarded, for example, for political reasons. Absolutely. And if you think about, again, going back to what are the sinister, sinister things we need to think about, this, this notion of opinions and how opinions can breed a movement, can really instantiate in a society. Um, those are the things, this, this, this balance between facts and opinion is really a, a, a fine line when you think about how, how are you able to dispel opinion with facts? And how do you create a belief system that people can trust? I mean, trust being at the core. Um, again, y- y- you really have to think about who are we as a society? And when you think about science and facts, opinions, sentiment really plays a key role as well. That's a good transition for me to ask you about some of the ethical issues that um surround data. So there are a lot of issues involved in how data is used, collected, and stored, including regulatory issues. And I'm sure you're intimately familiar with GDPR. Um, What are some of the biggest unsolved problems in in this process of managing how we store, collect, and use people's data or just data in general? Yeah. so, so, So I would say there are a couple of key themes. One is trust. Um, At the heart of this, um, people have to trust that you are using their information, their data in the right ethical way. And how can you build trust without transparency? And so building a transparent environment in terms of the use is is another theme that we really need to think through. How do we build trust in in this? How do we build transparency in this? And then what are the privacy considerations? right? Do I own my data? Do I own it and I give it to you when I believe and I feel that it is important for you for the services that I want? Um, again, you know, we, we could think we could use clinical trials, we could use social services. Um, how are you using my data to effectively help reduce disease? Um, how are you, I, on the flip side, are you using it to create a barrier to entry for me for certain things. Let's say insurance. I mean, when you, let's think about these things, right? And so the question is, how do you create an ethical envi- framework, policy at the heart, trust and transparency built into the methodology that helps build an environment where government, academia, private and public sector govern the use in an, in an ethical way? How do you build models with ethical um, considerations as part of the modeling. 
and how do you create this transparency that helps people understand, wait a second, here's how I'm using your data. Here's what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. And oh, by the way, may I have some of your data for the purposes of X or Y? I mean, there are just so many considerations that we need to think about. But I, I think it starts at government working with public and private sector to build policies that help govern, orchestrate, um, and really understand how we should be using data, both for personal, public, and, and private use. So that's uh, the role of government. Um, government can regulate, government can punish data breaches, for example, um, and they can cooperate, as, as you mentioned, in this role of building trust. Um, what, what, what do you think the key role of government is in addressing those, those challenges of data? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a fine line between the punitive nature of what you're doing um, and really collaborating to fully understand what's the best use and how we as a society determine the best use. I, I think government is, 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 a, is the axle for creating the policies that we as a society have to embrace. Um, I don't think they should be the, uh, the, 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 the only one to regulate. I think, you know, they create bodies through collaboration that say, these are the things we need to do. And let's look at um, chemical spills as an example, or the use of chemicals. How do we govern with private sector, academia, um, and government at the core working in conjunction with those organizations to best define what are the risks associated, what is the framework by which we want to make sure we manage this, who owns or who has the custodial responsibility, the stewardship of various forms. Government, for me, is at the heart of that. Government used to control, they used to own more data about citizens than the private sector. Now, private sector can have, basically owns the vast majority of data in the world about people. Well, let's talk about the future. So digital transformation is happening so rapidly in so many sectors. What, what future innovations, what, what's the next big thing? What, what future innovations can we expect in this area? I think when you think about the, the transformation, digital, um, quantum computing, technology at the edge, IoT, when you think about all of these things, um, there are certain existential things that we can really focus on. Um, let's take healthcare as an example. Um, there are some exciting technologies coming out in terms of the ability to affect in the telehealth, telemedicine environment, you at home being able to do some of the basic um, health checks remotely to be able to then work with, with a doctor on the other end to then diagnose. Fabulous way for those in remote areas, those not able to get to, to a doctor. And even you know, in this environment we're in today, how do we engender that? Um, in agriculture, um, some of the things we're doing with precision ag agriculture, focusing on waste management, water conservation, um, understanding um, weather patterns, to best understand crops where we can grow, um, reducing the 
carbon footprint for, for agriculture and animals. Um, there's some exciting technologies there when you look at what's going on there. And so, you know, manufacturing, um, if you think about manufacturing, the full supply chain, and when we look at how we're in building intelligent supply chains to understand practices all the way through your supply chain, another exciting area. So there are many technologies in industries where we are truly at the cusp of transforming how we apply services that I, I think we, we, we're not going back. So that's, I, I like that answer. That makes it sound like a sort of Star Trek version of the world, but it's a lot of people are worried about a more of a Blade Runner version of the world. Some of these innovations are somewhat sinister. What, what do you think about the, the, the more sinister developments and how do we mitigate those risks? Um, I, I, I think, it, again, it gets back to this, this notion of collaborating more broadly to mitigate um, the unethical and the uses that will, will only undermine the progress that needs to be made in society. Um, data sciences, we have a, we, you know, th this is a unique and, and great time for us to be able to use modeling, predictive modeling, to understand the pros and cons of things that could occur. And so how do we use that to our advantage to help us think about what are the things that we will be doing well? And oh, by the way, what are the things that could potentially happen, unintended consequences? <coughs> Excuse me, I, I, think, I think we have the opportunity using data and science to understand the pros and cons of what could occur. And so let's use that in a more um, let, let's use that in a more comprehensive way to be able to, to your point, mitigate some of the sinister things that could occur. Okay. Well, we're gonna we've got a lot of questions that have been appearing in the Q and A, and I'm gonna put some of those to you. But let me ask one last question that um, I haven't checked the full list yet, but I know that someone is always interested in asking this question. Sometimes they're too shy to ask, but. What would you say to students that have listened to you and heard about your career and basically say, I want to do a job like that. I want to be the CIO or CDO. Um, if a student, uh, for example, the London School of Economics or in any other place, it could be a secondary school student. What do you think the most important uh, thing that they can do to, to pursue their studies or to develop as a person that could get into a role like yours? So I, I think there, you know, you said most important, but there are a couple of things. One is your belief system in yourself. Um, in, you know, today's world, one could readily get on, go, go on social media and look at someone who you believe is doing better than you, um, who is excelling far more than you are. The key there is you too can. And so this belief system in yourself um, transcends everything that you want to do. Um, that's number one. Number two, the power of relationships. Um, if you are just a great engineer sitting in a corner and no one knows about it, that's all you are. And so how do you build relationships to help you help people um, and really learn how to interact in a way that helps, helps you thrive? So the power of relationships. And then, you know, your moral values, you know, to thine own self be true, as my dad used to say. And so go with your gut. Um, at the end of the day, you can do and be anything. 
If you have that belief system, you have a passion for what you do and you build relationships to then help you further your agenda, help you interact with individuals. I think those, those are some of the key things that will really help you thrive. I, um, we, it, the sort of data science that we teach at the London School of Economics is very much includes that third component of data science in the famous Venn diagram where uh, it's not just statistics, it's not just computing, but it's also uh, knowledge of the domain. And pretty much all the data areas that we've spoken about today involve human affairs and right. knowing something about that field of human affairs. Just as you mentioned, your your first passion was political science. Um, yeah. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Let, let me just add to that. I mean, the, the, it's about solving the world's problems, no matter what, right? How we eat, how we work, you know, it, it is about solving the world's problems. And in order to do that, domain knowledge takes on a different lens. It is about having the purview to understand the existential problems, the societal problems, the, 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 world's, the world's issues. And so you can't be a data scientist unless you have mastery of how to learn, mastery of how to be curious, mastery of how to bring together the various things that go on to solve the world's problems. Um, and so the mastery that you may think about is, is more than just a statistical model. It's more than just understanding how to create that. It's more than just, um, you know, having quantitative analysis as a class. It's, it's not just that as a domain. It's about the societal elements and understanding and having mastery of that as well. So let's turn to some questions. I know we've got lots of interesting questions coming through. Um, and I also want to thank our audience for participating. We've got a great audience today. We've got people uh, listening to this from the United Kingdom, from the United States, from Ireland, from Ecuador, from Philippines, and we have some participants from Zambia. So we are speaking to a truly global global audience here live. And of course, the people who are watching this on the recording could be you know, broader still by far. Um, so let, let's, uh, I've got a question here from Tabiri Unika from University of Bucharest, um, an MA student. How do you perceive the use of data in managing or making decisions connected with people? And do you think that um, we should use data in every aspect of decision-making? So data, well, to answer the question, yes, we should use data. Data as a data point has to be embedded in our decision-making process. You know, this, this empirical notion that there's facts, there's opinion, there's views, and all of those together are the decisions you need, the things you need to include to make a decision about an outcome relative to, to people. Um, I don't think you can do it without data. Uh, so, so, so my perspective is yes, to answer your question. Okay. Um, here's another question from Lauren Georg, who's an LSE graduate. Uh, going back to the question about careers, what advice would you give to someone who would like to work in the computing world but has no background in it? Where, where, where should they start? So there are many, uh, so, so a couple of things. Um, one is what is your passion relative to computers? Because computers are, are used now everywhere. Technology is everywhere. And so where your passion lies is the first place to start. The second, I, you know, I would advocate 
that you go online to, um, there are some tools out there and I'm going to advocate for LinkedIn learning right now because there's a tool out there that helps you tease out who you, what you really like to do. And so I would say start by looking at that. And then, you know, LSE, I mean, look, go, go out and look at some of, the, some of the universities and institutions that have careers relative to your passion. Because I, again, I would argue that you can be an economist and use technology. You could be a retail analyst and use technology. You can be a financial analyst. I mean, technology transcends everything. It starts with what is your passion, even in the creative industry, in the arts, a stylist, a designer. And so the first thing for you is to figure out what your passion is. Okay, um, let's switch gears. Here's a question from Fanula O'Connor, data entrepreneur. Should data be privately owned for a limited time as in a copyright model? I think there is, an, there, I think there is a case to be had for data to be privately owned by the individual. Um, in a, in a, in a, you know, I, I, I saw um, a, a technology process once about vaulting. So where you think about you own your data, everything from your birth certificate to, to, to everything relative, and you, you, lend it, you loan it out for the purposes of whatever it may be to get your first driver's license, as an example. Um, and so I think the notion of ownership of your data should actually be something that we should think about. There's an interesting discussion going on. I guess Microsoft's not directly involved, but this discussion, or you can call it a discussion between uh, Facebook and, and Apple at the moment um, over blocking the tracking through browsers and things that would... Uh, limit the, the amount of data that Facebook can provide. It's very much in that uh, debate, in that sphere of whether, of, of who should own that data and, and have the right to restrict it. Speaking of Facebook, you don't have to wade into that. Speaking of <laughs> Facebook, um, we have a question from Facebook, uh, from our Facebook uh, live, live stream chat. So this is Brian Wong. He's a PhD candidate at University College London. He asks, what steps do we need to take to close the digital divide so that all young people can participate in and benefit from the digital transformations in health? Yeah, um, it's all about equity, right? Um, equitable access, access to, access to education, access to healthcare. It is all about access. And so for me, it starts with how do we ensure that one, skilling, um, in underserved communities um, starts early on. Um, and, you know, at Microsoft, we are focused on a skilling initiative that is focused on in underserved communities. Um, it's all also about how you build these services, these wraparound services for, for folks who may not have access. You may not have a device. You may not have broadband. Um, and so providing access to these things are also part of what you need to do. And then there's access to employment, um, you know, access to, well, access to equitable education and then employment. And so this notion of skilling, providing the skills and providing access to employment, removing and limiting, reducing the barriers to entry. I mean, not everyone is gonna go to university, but everyone can be skilled in different things and we get people, everyone can be employed. And so how do you remove those barriers? 
that is also a part of it. And then, you know, just basically then those who are in, in power and have influence, removing the barriers to pro, pro economic mobility, work mobility. Um, and so, you know, it, it's kind of a full life cycle when you think about it, foundationally built on equitable access. Okay, thanks. Here's a question from Ewan Grant and from London. He's a former HMRC intelligence analyst. He asks, which organizations do you think effectively join up quantitative analysis and qualitative? Why are they successful and which organizations are not doing this successfully? So I, I, I think I would be, it would be unfair for me to reference specific organi organizations I, would, I think it's fair to say success hinges on collaboration. And so those who collaborate well are the ones who succeed. Those who do not collaborate are the ones, and, and those who do not feel that they should collaborate are the ones that are not succeeding. So I want to ask this question just because it's, it, it goes back to one that we previously asked, but it's such a great question. Um, this is from Michelle Levy um, from Inspiring Tomorrow's Leaders. She has a question for Jackie for the 13 and 14-year-old Black girls who are in their scholars program. And she says, you are a phenomenal role model. What message do you have for that young girl interested in computers but not sure how to pursue that interest? Okay, and I think I know Michelle. So hello, Michelle. <laughs> um, what, 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 do you, what do you do? So, so, I, so again, you know, for me, it starts with... You can do and be anything. Know that, number one. Um, number two, the key to economic mobility and success hinges on you knowing technology. So whether you are, um, no matter what you want to be, whether you want to be, a, 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 again, a designer, a stylist, archaeologist, anthropologist, technology is used in every aspect of that. And so then, so, so I would say technology you have to know be confident in what you want to do, have a passion for what you want to do, and the rest comes naturally. Okay, here's a question from Horatio Mortimer, who I believe is at LSE. Okay. Do you, do you worry that advances in data science results in people's motivations being better understood by machines than by themselves, and that machines will then need to be trusted not to manipulate people? Yeah, I, th I think that's an interesting question. And, you know, I often, uh, I have this discussion with, with, with my team quite often in terms of, uh, I don't think a computer can nurture. And so when I think about, you know, the, the, this notion of what, what, you know, what can a computer do versus what, what a person can do, the emotional piece, we could, we could debate this, you know, where does emotion and nurturing come in as it relates to a, a computer versus an individual? I believe a computer can derive things, give it, and, and over time mature the thinking, but I, 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 I challenge that a computer can do some things that we as human beings will always do. And I, again, I use nurturing because for me, that one is one that I think, you know, I, I can, you know, can, 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 you know, can you nurture, can a computer really nurture a, a child? Let's think about that. Maybe someone will think, think I'm, you know, we'll, 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 we'll debate that, but I firmly believe that there are some things that computers just won't be able to do.
Okay. What, what do you think, Ken? You know, I'm a, you're asking, what, what, what's your view? I'd be curious on that one. Um, so there are definitely things that computers, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word understand, but in terms of prediction, um, we think that we're spontaneous, but we're actually incredibly regular. And the behaviors that we engage in can be predicted so easily, which is why, you know, people, uh, my wife, <clears throat> my wife, for instance, and sometimes she and I try to experiment by saying things out loud. And then we try to see if it appears in say our Facebook feeds or on right. our ads, just because uh, we're convinced sometimes that uh, the computers are listening. Um, and I'm assured by people who work for the companies that make those, that that's not the case. It's just that their, their analytics are so advanced that they are serving up ads for things that uh, we might want to buy even before we're aware of that, uh, that we do. Um, yeah. In terms of locations, uh, our purchases, it's just incredibly regular. So do we call that understanding? No. Uh, is that a type of straitjacket or is that improving our lives? It's, it's, a, it's a thin line. Um, I agree. I, I agree. And I think that's a good point relative to, you know, again, I get back to nurturing. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not predictable. Um, your point about regular, regular, you know, predictability is based on that. And your, your point is, you know, we as human beings, we have some things that are regular. Um, spontaneity doesn't, has its place, but can, can a computer be spontaneous? Uh, we Sometimes just, we deny ourselves things that we know that we like because, you know, they're, uh, they're not good for us in excess. Um, that's not the, you know, what, predictive analytics motivated by a business deliver things to us that we like, whether it's good for us or not, and they're just going to keep coming. So sometimes um, too much uh, is a bad thing. Too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. And I think that's, that's largely responsible for some of the um, echo chambers that we see that reinforce extremism, for example. Yeah, uh, yeah you're, you're absolutely right. That's my key problem with social media, that you get rewarded by like-minded uh, views and that reinforces your like-minded views. And sometimes that devolves into conspiracy theories and other damaging things for society or extremist views or hateful views. And that gets back to the point around understanding who you are as an individual and even as a parent, understanding your, your children in terms of their ability to be influenced um, in, in, as it relates to social media. So I've got a question relevant to that from Jenna Yeh from the LSE MSc in Management and BSc in International Relations alumni. She's currently in Taiwan. There's another country on our list. Um, so her question is, you mentioned earlier that the importance of creating boundaries and how we use and proliferate data. Do you think that the responsibility to create these boundaries should fall to national governments, to private companies, or even to international organizations? Yes. To all of all of the, the above. I, I, absolutely. I mean, let, let's let's be frank here. Um, how we govern our lives is not is not and should not be controlled by one individual or person or, or, or institution. So then why should we, why should our data and how we govern that be the same? Um, that would be my philosophical question to, to, to us. It's a tricky one though. Um, GDPR was partly designed to provide that sort of safe space of regulations, uh, making companies be responsible and also safeguarding privacy. But it's uh, 
it's we could we don't want to just blame GDPR. We could, I think we could blame the entire category of regulation that they're always blunt instruments and they're they're always going to be cumbersome and, and difficult to achieve even a small fraction of what they intended to achieve. Absolutely. And we need to have the ability and fluidity to refine as we go along, right? I mean, what may start out as what we believe to be the right thing relative to a regulation or how we do things, you find out that it needs to be refined. It's no longer fit for purpose. And so we need to have the ability to change policy and have an evergreen agile process relative to understanding what's going on in society. Here's a question from Bridge McCarlin, uh, Macarlene, I'll probably mispronounce it, sorry, Bridge. Um, what are the key digital priorities for Microsoft this year? And what are the two or three key items that you're working on? Uh, so, you know, uh, the, the, the ethos of Microsoft is about helping everyone on the planet to achieve more. And so our priorities are all about that. And when you think about the top things today, we look at how we are enabling our customers to achieve more for their, for their services. We're looking at how we make sure our employees thrive in, in an environment that they too can be inclusive and create the right products and solutions and services for our customers and the world. And then, you know, what is our societal um, role, civic role? civic tech and how do we ensure that we as a company are making sure that we are doing our part relative to making sure that there is equity in society. Those are kind of the top. And, you know, from an industry perspective, all aspects of industry, as we look at healthcare, um, we've launched various things relative to um, vaccination management, um, how we're creating chatbots to help in triage processes. We're looking at intelligent manufacturing. Um, we're looking at agriculture. Um, and so all, all aspects of industries with the ethos of making sure that we're doing that in an ethical way. Let me ask, let me follow on uh, that question with, this is a question from Abdifata Dehulo. And, and I would encourage everyone, please put your, put a note about where you're um, dialing in from and what your current uh, role is, just so that we can, I can mention those. Um, but Abdifata's question is, as a part of the Microsoft team facilities, what else um, is Microsoft company doing to help medical professionals and managers use data to make better decisions collectively to improve patient care. So it's specifically a question about patient care. We are collaborating with various healthcare um, institutions on building, on working with them, building models around understanding health, around understanding how to apply and services, and also specific bespoke technologies relative to what I talked about how you provide teleservices. Um, and so those are some of the things that we're actually working on. Um, we're, we're working with, this, you know, with the CDC um, on, on various things also. A again, this notion about how we enable the, you know, our role in society um, hinges on us doing the right thing and working with these institutions to bring better services, equitable services across, across the globe. We've got a comment from Dr. Petula Peters, who says, so great to hear about your life. I heard you speak at a government digital conference. You were excellent. Keep on moving on up and an inspiration to everyone. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that. 
So here's a question from Steve Early. He's a data architect at the LSE. As applications of machine learning and AI become increasingly advanced, how realistically can organizations avoid the black box problem and genuinely control or gain control over and responsibility for decision making? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a good question. You know, as, and as a data architect, I think you, you are an architect who needs to be able to look left to right, um, make sure we are inclusive in our application of um, models, et cetera. So, so, so I would say that, again, I, I know I keep going back to this notion of diversity and making sure everyone is included, but without having comprehensive input, you can't have comprehensive output. And so um, how we need to do that to prevent this black box, uh, if I'm understanding the, the question correctly, is, is really all about making sure that we have an inclusive, innovative environment to be able to do that. Okay, here's a question following on that um, from Sophie Parker, LSE alumni uh, 2020, now strategy and policy senior associate at Ofcom on the digital markets and online regulation team. Yeah. How do we design regulation that encourages the positives of AI in businesses and societies? And what are the regulatory measures we have in our toolbox to do so? Uh, I, I think that's, that's also a good question. I, I, I think it starts with having a framework that outlines both the positives, the outcomes we want with the risks associated with that. Um, you know, policy, when you think about the creation of policy, um, policy is created to solve what we believe a problem to be or how we can enable something to occur. Um, do we place as much emphasis on the risks associated with that? Do we understand the ramifications of the policy being applied to effectively make sure that we've built in all the necessary checks and balances. I would argue that we don't have enough, one, um, people who can think more broadly about the pros and cons and the risks associated with it. Two, we need to have a, a, a policy makers be inclusive in making sure that people who do see that can include, we can include that, uh, and we shouldn't rush to always put policy out. We need to create policies that can be changed on an evergreen process. Um, so, so I think those are some of the things that we need to think about as we think about, to your point, you know, what are some of the things? I, I firmly believe this, this notion of looking at a risk framework as part of, the, of what problem you're trying to solve and building in models that can effectively do that will help us create the right policies, um, policies that, that will be fit for purpose at the time, but we will have an, an environment, an evergreen environment where they can change rapidly when, need, when needed. Here's a question from Meryl Wilbers, LSE Applied Social Data Science graduate. Hi, Meryl. She's one of our students in the program last year. Um, she's now a process mining consultant at Salonis. How can we ensure that governments or e-governments keep up with innovations in software and technology, even though that this is a big financial commitment, we could also say a big um, investment of education. Does the yeah. private sector need to take more responsibility or do the government simply need to invest more? I think it's a bit of both. I think there's, there's this, this concept of, you know, governments learning how to collaborate much like the private sector in certain aspects of the private sector does. Um, when you collaborate, you, you build in, to your point, these, the, the, this, this comprehensive knowledge about what 
you could and could not do. And so um, I, I think it, it behooves both private sector to spend more time with government providing the guidance, what, what they see in the private sector and government opening the doors to say private sector, academia, how can we collaborate more so that we collectively can come up with the right solutions and policies for, for society? I've personally accepted of being in a, a basically a, a permanent state of a feeling of ignorance about technology, which is ironic because my level of technology is pretty high, but the innovations are so rapid that you know, people who are in computer science are just used to the fact that every single year you're involved in continuing education and learning new things because there are always new things, new programming languages, new paradigms, new tools, new services. Um, and I think one of the daunting things for people is they, they feel like they need to invest the time to learn the technology world when in fact there's, there's very little of such a thing. It's, it's basically learning to run on that treadmill. And That's right. Fall off. In partnership, because yes. yes, bringing the right expertise um, to the table and making sure that you have a diverse team is, is the key to making sure that, that you're bringing that innovation as needed. Um, I also think that as we think about in government, there's an opportunity to make sure that we bring more expertise and higher expertise from such areas as computer science, um, um, data science, because that too would also help change the, 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 the culture of how government works because it, it is now creating a new environment with different types of, of disciplines in, in, in government, which you wouldn't traditionally see in mass. We've got time for a few more, maybe one or two more questions. Here's one from Casey Chappelle, Director of Privacy and Security Risk at GoCardless. What are some practical tips that you can share for companies wanting to embed data ethics practices in their data programs? Good question. So uh, there are a couple of things. One is, I think, you know, in, in your organization, you need to have an semblance of ethical governance, um, because in order to, to, to be able to think about the practicalities across all aspects of the business, you've got to have people who can come to the table with their domain expertise relative to what's going on in their area. So I would say put in something that could help you govern relative to ethical practices. Um, I would say that you need to build in a toolkit around ethical development, um, ethical analytics analytics and at Microsoft we, we we do have that as a team as a checks and balances as part of the innovation process and so in the innovation process in the development process do you have ethical staging processes where you can then look and say have we thought about the you know using a type of toolkit checks and balances also as that and then I would say at the at the on at the outset when you've developed what are the ways that you can have also checks and balances from an ethical team to then look at your models and look at what you're developing and ask the questions, ask the right questions. So this notion of governing, both the governance piece, how you develop with it ethical in mind, and then at the back end before you release something, how you think about it. I think that is the life cycle that, that companies uh, uh, need to really embrace. Here's a question, and this might be a good question to end on. Pika Johansson, uh, current LSE master student and data analyst at the United Nations. The most sophisticated analytics and technology sit within the private sector, while around the world, the public sector and humanitarian actors who would benefit greatly from these innovations are falling 
increasingly behind. What do you think that we could do to reduce this divide and incentivize the spread of um, some of this data and analytics wealth to, um, to these humanitarian sectors? Yeah, I, I think there are two things. I think we as technology companies need to play our role in responsibly working with, to your point, these humanitarians and governments to help improve the outcomes of the society. So that is one. And that is private sector, as you think about it, as we think about what is our so what's the social purpose? What's our purpose-driven agenda? The purpose-driven agenda should should be all about that. Um, the, on, on the flip side, I think governments and, and humanitarian organizations can build partnerships with technology firms, with firms who are focused on this, to then look at the outcomes and see how the partnerships, co-innovation, co-development, co-operation, to then work on solving some of these problems. So, I mean, it is twofold. It is the private sector really leaning in, really understanding, you know, the, again, the existential problems we have in society is part of your responsibility as a corporation. And so what are you doing? And then governments and humanitarian should hold the private sector to account in terms of how do you move the dial? Maybe putting some measures in place around moving the dial relative to the social impact that you're making, which we're starting to put in place, you know, around sustainability. I just think we need to extend that and expand that. One of my favorite Microsoft products is a company that you acquired recently called GitHub, um, yeah. loved by coders and data scientists all around the world. And once when the system went down, there was this collective cry of pain on Twitter felt across the developer community. One of the things that I think is great is um, it, the reason it's really the, the biggest player in open source promotion is that you continue to offer free repositories and actions and incredible service as long as those um, repositories are open source. And I can also say as someone who started a, uh, an open source nonprofit company that's also available for, for free. And I applaud you for that. And I hope that you continue to do absolutely wonderful job with, with that platform. So I okay. thank you. On behalf. Thank you. And I, I think, again, this ability to collaborate globally in a way that we've never done before is the key to solving the problems of society today. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion and frame. We have to bring it to a close now. Um, but Jackie, thank you so much for participating and thank you so much for being such an incredible inspiration to all the people who've expressed uh, from around the world um, their appreciation for, for you being such an inspiration. And uh, I really, really welcome you and thank you for the, um, the opportunity to speak today. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. We'll, we'll draw this to a close and um, thank you all in our audience for for participating and for all the excellent questions. We're sorry we couldn't get to them all, um, but this is only an hour long event and we could be here all day with this fascinating discussion, but we'll let uh, Jackie get on with her day and the rest of you get back to your afternoon. So thank you very much.